Well, Palm Sunday's in two weeks, but we get the Palm Sunday passage today, the triumphal entry. We're going to continue our study of John by reading chapter 12, verses 12 through 26. This can be found on 899 of those Blue Pew Bibles that you have, but you can wait if you want to. Just listen, and I'll remind you of that page number in just a minute. So again, John 12, starting in verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it was written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he raised Lazarus out of the tomb and, or when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Every time my non-Christian friends ask me what I'm going to preach about, I give them the Bible passage that I'm about to preach about, and they're always like, why do you preach of the Bible? Can't you preach about something else? And when we read something like this, you kind of realize, man, what a blessing it is that God has given us his word and an anchor, not only for truth, but an anchor for our souls as well. He has also said to us that as we hear from him, he desires to hear from us. And that's why we pray. Will you join me in prayer? Father in heaven, we come to you this afternoon and we thank you for worship. We thank you that we gather together 
and together we hear one another's voices. We hear Bradley and Nathan's harmony. We hear each other singing. We hear the professions of faith echoed in the liturgy. We hear who you are from your word and we praise you. Father, we confess to you that we often think of this day as the end of our weekend. But Father, we praise you that your word speaks of it as the beginning of our week. The place where we come to be fed, to enable us as the women and men that you have called us to be, to bear your image in the spheres of influence where you have called us. Father, particularly today, we want to praise you for John and Megan Minan. We want to praise you for Willa, and we praise you for this little boy that is yet to be born. We praise you that you have called them to the University of Vermont. And when they are with us, we remember that they're not with us Sunday in and Sunday out, and we miss them. Father, I pray that you would remind them that you are with them and that the cost of ministry is worth it because of Jesus, what you are doing in them and through them at the University of Vermont. Father, we pray that those students would know more and more about you and that you would bring many to saving faith. Father, we praise you for Vasily and Chrissy. Father, we ask that you would be with Vasily's sister in Ukraine even today. Father, as the shells of the war continue to fall around Marina, would you protect her and her son and daughter-in-law? Father, would you remind them that you are with them? Father, we pray for the Christians in Ukraine and the Christians in Russia. Father, we pray that you would minimize the suffering and the death. And we pray that you would maximize the sanctification that you are bringing. And that you will bring through their suffering that many would come to faith. Father, we pray that you would cause this war to cease and that you would do it by your power. Father, we confess to you that we feel helpless. Father, please don't allow us to be prayerless. Father, we come to you on behalf of many who are with us who are struggling to believe that you love them. Father, we pray that you would be with us and that you would convince us as we see Jesus that we would be convinced that you know us even when we don't know ourselves and that you love us. Father, convince us that forgiveness is real. Father, I pray for the women and the men who are here today who have yet to put their faith and trust in that forgiveness. Holy Spirit, would that idea of free grace resonate in their minds today? Father, we come before you and we ask you to do a great work in us 
and in our body, corporately, Father, and because of your love for the places that you have put us, we pray that you would do a great work in our communities. Father, I pray that you would empower us in these next few minutes together um, to be prepared for the week that you have laid forth ahead of us. Father, be with us now. Give us clarity. And as Nathan has reminded us, as Dan reminded us rather of uh, the prayers of old, would you allow me, the preacher, to rightly proclaim your word? And would we hear it with ears of faith? We pray all of this in your name, Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, a friend of mine sent me an article uh, this last week, and it was about the condition of our culture post-pandemic. It's an article, it's about uh, ministry and what ministry is going to be like um, post this season of the world. But it really speaks more about the culture that we live in. And he believes, this, this one minister who happens to have a lot of influence, he believes that there are five truths about our culture today and the hour in which we live that are going to be true for the foreseeable future. Listen to these. He says that he believes that all signs point that the continue and current instability will continue that we live in. He believes that we as people are going to be more and more selfish in the way that we interact with the world in which we live. That the culture in which we live will remain deeply divided. That moral and theological and philosophical questions will become more intense and more important for us to be addressing. And that finally, deep leadership will be up for the challenge of these things, but shallow leadership won't. That's a tough view of our world today. The hour, if you will, in which we live. Some folks were studying over at my house this week, and kind of the refrain was, if we could choose a time and place in which to live, we might not have chosen this time and this place. But I want to ask you a question. Do you think that Jesus is up for this hour? Do you think he's up for it? And then I want to ask the question this way. Are you and I up for this hour? Are, are we up for this hour? For those of you who have been studying the book of John, you know that a phrase was just read to you that you've been waiting for for 12 chapters. Jesus saying that because the Greeks came to him, that the hour had finally come. Always starts with Greeks, doesn't it? Always does. But here, the hour has come. And it's come in two ways. That's all I want to talk about today. The hour has come for Jesus to be revealed. But the hour has also come for us to come to grips with who we are going to follow. So the first thing that I want you to see is that the hour has come for Jesus to be revealed. 
Look at these verses 12 through 19 with me. What you are known and what you have been taught of is called the triumphal entry. It's the first day of the week. Remember, Jesus has just been anointed with a whole pound of perfume. And so you can imagine that Jesus is walking into Jerusalem and people smell him almost as quick as they see him. And this huge crowd has come out to visit him. They have taken palm branches, which are a national symbol of Israel by this time. They have taken palm branches. The crowds have come. The chaos has descended. And they are waving these palm branches. This time is the time for Jesus to be revealed. This is the hour that we are told in the Gospel of John that had always been future-oriented, right? We saw it for the first time when Jesus met with a woman at the well. He told her that the hour would come when people would worship the Father, not in one location or another, but in spirit and in truth. We are told in chapter 7 that the reason that Jesus couldn't get um, arrested at that time is that his hour had not yet come. And the same idea in chapter 8, that they failed to arrest him again, that he escaped arrest because his hour had not yet come. But what we hear from Jesus in verse 23 is that the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. But there's a conflict here of how Jesus is going to be glorified. Remember, as one of the commentators has taught us to say, to be glorified is to be revealed. We remember through the story of, of Lazarus that Jesus said that through Lazarus' story, both God is going to be revealed and the Son of God is going to be revealed. And Jesus says here that now the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I think there are two options here as Jesus is going to be revealed. Option one and option two. That'll be easy to track with, right? Option one is going to be shaped by this really large crowd that comes out to meet Jesus as they smell him approach. That's option one. That crowd is going to be made up of all of the people, we are told in verse 12, that came to worship at this time of Passover. A week early, they would have come to purify themselves and for a whole week would have prepared and worshipped, waiting for Passover to come. That crowd was interspersed with a smaller crowd, we're told, that was there at Lazarus' tomb when Jesus called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised Lazarus from the dead. And that crowd is also made up of Pharisees. And that crowd wants to shape the way that Jesus is going to be revealed. Jesus is going to be revealed as a political conqueror, according to this crowd. Jeff led us in our liturgy out of Psalm 118. And the words that this crowd uh, chant, if you will, to Jesus are also from Psalm 118, the very verses that follow our call to worship. When they say, Hosanna, meaning save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The one who comes to reveal the very person and character of the God Yahweh 
of the nation of Israel. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel, the Messiah. Psalm 118 had been used for centuries at this point as a messianic psalm to proclaim the coming of God's king. The promised one that God promised to David who would sit on the throne forever. This crowd had identified that Jesus was that person. We're told in verse 18 that the reason that they came out is because they had heard that Jesus had done the sign of raising Lazarus from the dead. And you go, hey, pretty good choice for a king, right? A king that has power over death, make that our king. Let's make him our king, right? Jesus is revealed as this political conqueror, this freedom fighter who will set them free, a miracle worker, if you will, one that is favored by the majority. That's what the Pharisees are saying. Look, all of them are coming to him. What good has come to you because of Jesus is what they say to one another. All is lost in their mind. This is option number one of who Jesus is. Option number two is who Jesus reveals himself to be. You know that if you've paid attention, this is the second time that the crowd has thought, we're going to make this guy our king. Do you remember the first time? It was after the feeding of the 5,000, and Jesus actually sent his disciples away onto the water because he knew they couldn't handle what the crowd was going to do, which was they were trying to take Jesus by force and make Jesus their king. At that point, it wasn't raising somebody from the dead that, that allowed him to be the king. It was providing for their physical needs that allowed him to be the king. Let's make that guy our king. And you go again, obvious choice. But then Jesus withdrew. But this time, Jesus doesn't withdraw. He does two things to shape the revelation of the Son of Man, the revealing of who he is, the glorification of the Son of Man. One of them is public and one of them is private. The first one that's public is in verse 14. Verse 14 says this, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it was written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. You go, it just means nothing to me. I understand it doesn't, but for these folks, for the folks that would have been steeped in the Old Testament, for the folks who would have been steeped in the Old Testament, in the portion of it that had been written the most recently, some possibly 480 years earlier, the prophecy of Zechariah, they would have recognized the image that was there. You see, kings enter their cities triumphantly on war horses with power and with might and with the ability to crush it all. And in this choice of Jesus to enter into the city on a donkey, he has taken this nationalistic flavor of a political revolt, and he has dampened it completely. This is what you see of God's anointed one in Zechariah 9. 
Not only that, but the context of Zechariah 9 point to this coming king bringing a cessation of war, of actually proclaiming a worldwide peace, and even using the blood of the covenant to set the prisoners free. That's the context of Zechariah 9, that Jesus says that's going to shape the revelation of the Son of God, the glorification of the Son of God. But the other thing that Jesus does is that he sets up this triumphal entry for his disciples. And he does so in verse 24. Look at verse 24 for me. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, Nathan and I have said over and over in this study of John that when Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, he's going, pick up your heads, don't fall asleep, listen to me. I've got something you need to remember. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, think about the agricultural society that Jesus is in. This makes sense, right? Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. If I drop a sunflower seed in my cabinet where we keep the sunflower seeds, is the sunflower going to grow? No, the sunflower has to fall into the earth and it has to die. And Jesus says, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus, for those who listen to him in private with his disciples, is telling them that his reign is going to be very ironic. He is saying that what I want you to see in this entry, what I want you to be thinking about is that death brings life. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it falls in and dies, it produces much fruit. Jesus says, unless a grain does this. In other words, he's saying this is necessary. Death is the necessary end to what you are witnessing Jesus commences his reign by advancing his death. Jesus is saying it's necessary that death shape this picture of the triumphal entry. Why is that? Because we need a wounded healer. We need a crucified king we do not need a king who gives us a good example. We do not need a king who teaches us how to pluck the flowers of our sin so that we look good to others. Rather, we need a king who strikes at the vitals of sin, going to the root and uprooting it. We need a crucified king. This is the second option. It's the option that Jesus shapes. The question is, which option, first or second, the large crowd with the Pharisees, whether it's those with uh, Lazarus, option one or option two, which option do you and I reveal of Christ in the way we live our lives? Which option? What would following 
Jesus like option two look like for us? Jesus said that hour had come for him to be glorified. Everything in the Gospel of John points to the glorification of Christ at the cross where God's love for his people is revealed through the giving of his son for our sin. What could further define his love for you and me? But what would following him look like? I'm convinced, and this is the second and the last part of this sermon, that the hour has come for us as well. I say for us because I think we're a lot like the disciples, and Jesus is focusing on the disciples and what he says, right? We're told that the disciples are not part of this crowd that are necessarily worshiping him. They didn't know what to make of it, by the way. And if you ever get to the place where you go, I'm not sure what to make of Jesus, you're in good company. (laughs) Because Jesus' disciples didn't know what to make of it. But the hour had come for them to decide, who are you going to follow? Is it option one or is it option two of who I am? And I think it's good for us to remember on this day of triumphal entry that the hour has come for us to also come to grips regarding whom we are going to follow. And Jesus gives us two options of who we follow. You see, these are heady times for these disciples. This one guy, Josephus, who was a historian during the times of Jesus, wrote that at Passover in Jerusalem, the crowds were as large as 2.7 million people. How large did you think the crowd at Passover was? I guess I thought it was large, but 2.7 million people, that's twice That's almost three times as many people as come out for the Boston Marathon in total. That's how large this crowd is. And this crowd flocks out to see Jesus. And these disciples are thinking to themselves, we're the 12 that are closest. This is a heady time for us. This might be the time when folks finally recognize us. But the disciples are going, we don't really understand what's happening. Jesus does three things for them. He gives them the calculus of the gospel in verse 22. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies in the earth, it produces much fruit. This this calculus, this way of understanding the gospel. We worship a crucified king. What does that mean for us? That means that Suffering, right, ought to be our middle name. I had a friend who called me this week, and he was trying to give me some advice. And he goes, you know, this is the deal about you, Bradley. Suffering is your middle name, and that's why you are going to end up doing X, Y, or Z, right? And I started thinking about that. There was a YouTube video that went around about an NBA coach who was going to their team, his team, and they had just lost a game. And he looked at them and he said, look, everything that you want in this life is on the other side of hard. If you're going to get anything that really matters in this life, it's on the other side of hard. And I thought to myself, Jimmy's right. I get that. I get the other side of hard. But the problem is is that it's still focused on this life. 
That's the problem with that idea. That's the problem with us thinking that our middle name is suffering. Because Jesus is not saying, look, your middle name ought to be suffering. Jesus is saying your middle name ought to be death and dying. That's your middle name. Not suffering. Death and dying. And you guys, if I'm honest with you, this week as I've sat in this passage, that is the last thing I want my middle name to be is death and dying. It's the last thing. Give me suffering all day long for this life, right? I'll work hard. But death and dying? Who are you going to follow? Jesus turns up the heat in verse 25. Listen to what he says. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it To eternal life. I almost want to ask you the question, do you hate your life? Before you misunderstand Jesus, you need to understand Jesus is not advocating self-loathing. That's not what he's advocating at all. And if you struggle with hating yourself, the gospel solution for you is to understand what God thinks of you. Jesus is not advocating self-loathing. But Jesus is actually taking a Semitic idiom, a, 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 a turn of phrase that was embedded into the human language about the difference between love and hate, the idea of preference. Jacob, I have loved. Esau, I have hated, right? This idea that God has preference. And Jesus is using that phrase saying, what is your preference? What are you going to prefer? And as one commentator said it this week, this is what he's talking about. Loving your life in this world, you will lose it eternally. But if you hate your life in this world, you will gain eternal life. This commentator said this, not pandering to self-interest Not pandering to self-interest, but at the deepest level, declining to make self the focus of your interest or of your perception of reality. Again, not pandering to self-interest, but refusing to make self your interest or the way in which you perceive the world all about you, all about me. Jesus brings us face to face with our selfishness. And if I'm honest with you, that's why this week has been so difficult to me. Because I've just been thinking about the magnitude of my selfishness. And for you to understand the power of the triumphal entry is for you to come face to face, for us to come face to face with selfishness in our own lives. Did you hear that it was one of the five new norms of our culture that we as adults are going to be acting more and more selfishly, this this one pastor and church leader believes? Did you know that the roaring 20s, many commentators say, was actually a response to 50 million people worldwide losing their their lives because of the flu. The idea that coming out of a pandemic, 
he argues that adults are going to say, I'm going to do whatever I want to do. And when I look at my life as an empty nester, with so much time on my hands, I wonder how many times I get a get-out-of-jail-free card on selfishness. Jesus is saying, what are you going to do about selfishness? The interesting thing is that selfishness and selfish people often are angry people. It makes sense, right? You would be angry because a selfish person thinks the world is about them, individualism, right? And since nobody else thinks the world is about you because everybody else thinks the world is about them, you're going to bump into each other and you're going to be angry all the time. Now, look, not all anger is motivated out of selfishness, but you want to know how you can tell if your anger is motivated out of selfishness? Does it move you toward people or away from people? Does it move you toward your community or away from your community? Does it move you toward reconciliation or toward division? What does your anger do? But selfishness that moves us away from instead of toward actually descends into despair. You guys know that I have just had my eyes open to Thomas Aquinas. There's no danger in in my mind whatsoever that I'm becoming Catholic. Um, There are many things that I disagree with deeply. But we have been studying the vices and the vices that are the opposites of virtues. And Aquinas calls despair the vice that is the opposite of the virtue of hope. That's despair. And he says that the vice of despair is unique, and this is why. And this is what I want you to listen to. Unlike adultery, for instance, I might say that I totally believe that I should love Mita with all my being as her husband. But temptation overwhelms me and adultery is committed. There is something that happens in my heart and I sin against my wife. And if I allow that to continue, my thoughts about God are going to be twisted. But he says of despair that it works the opposite way. Because despair is taking our eyes off of Jesus and having them averted to something else. We actually turn from God first and find something else to put our hope in And that leads us to despair. The idea of looking away and identifying our hopes somewhere else. On our own identity, on our own feelings, on our own experiences, on our own security, on our own, you name it. Are you struggling with despair? I've had enough. I'm just done. That's despair. Jesus is saying, look at me, look at me, look at me. 
Jesus says in verse 26, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This idea of serving Jesus, of saying he's the option that I am going to follow, that one, not myself, I'm following Jesus. To follow him, to be with him, is first and foremost for the Christian to the cross. It's first and foremost to the cross. It's that your middle name is death and dying. That's your middle name. That's my middle name. That's our middle name. Do you hear this? And like the knights who say with Monty Python and they go to, you know, the cave of the rabbit that has the big fangs like this. And they go and they try to attack the rabbit and suddenly the rabbit attacks them and they go, run away, run away, run away. And you hear me say that your middle name ought to be death and dying. And all we can say is run away. We don't want this. Hey, look, you're in great company because what do the disciples do to Jesus when he's crucified? What do they do? They run away. But Jesus doesn't and didn't. Did you catch the phrase of the song that we sang right before the sermon? Jesus said, if I am lost, he will come to me. Jesus doesn't run away from you. We saw last week his rage, but what did his rage cause him to do but draw closer to you because he loves you? Listen, if you're lost, you need to know that Jesus doesn't run away. But the second thing that happens is that when we follow Christ, we actually follow him to glory as well. Dan, you're not going to believe that this was part of this sermon, but it was written here. I spent the whole time in class not taking notes. I said, we've got to read Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. Listen to this declaration of God's love for you. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, united with him. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Because the end is not death and dying. The end is union with Christ. And that's what enables you and me to say, death and dying is all right for me right now. John told me that one of the most powerful days of his life was when God taught him to believe that he is called to love dying things. 
Do you believe that you are called to love dying things? Eternal life is what's at stake. But Jesus doesn't end there. He actually says, those who follow me, the Father will honor him. I want you to stop for a minute. And I want you to consider all the things that you're trying to run away from right now. You could write the list, couldn't you? I can write my list. What are all the things you're trying to run away from right now? Is it worth running away from those things and sacrificing God saying to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the kingdom. Because Jesus says, if you love your life now, you're going to lose it. But if you will prefer me, if you will hate your life, if you will prefer me over your life, you will keep it for an eternity. And if you follow me, the, the Father will honor you. Your choice of whether or not you follow Jesus will change the way you hear the rest of the Gospel of John. Because we are about to get into the most emotional sections of the Gospel of John that are written. Maybe some of the most emotional sections that, that, that reveal the heart of the Father toward us throughout all of Scripture. And your choice of following Jesus or yourself will allow you to experience the Gospel of John differently. One option is that it's going to bore you to death. You're going to be like, good night, this is so boring. I, I just feel completely indifferent, and I don't know why I feel indifferent. The other option is that you will hear Jesus' word with utter amazement. That the love of the Father for you and for me has been revealed the way that it has in Christ. And listen. I pray for you and me that we will soak in that love until the skin of our souls become wrinkled by the grace that defines our Father. That's what's ahead of us. And that's what's even represented here at this table. Will you come there with me now? Let's pray.